Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can't always give love the upper hand. Well, Brendan, here we are back again. February 6th. Saturday evening recording. This is probably going to be one of my more interesting Saturday evenings that I've had in a while. Yeah, that says a lot. I know. <laughs> Sadly. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, it's different than our past Saturday. We, we, we used to have these discussions we... <laughs> pre-podcast on Saturday nights, but they would look and sound a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, but that's where the whole podcast came from. So I guess we, we've come full circle in a lot of ways. It's true. Um, but this week... We've got an interesting week in the Republican Party, as it seems like every week is an interesting week in the Republican Party. So we had two figures that were central to the controversy in the past week, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a congresswoman from Georgia, and we're going to talk about everything going on with her, and then uh, Liz Cheney, a congresswoman from Wyoming, and we'll talk about uh, everything going on with, with her as well. Along those lines, along the free speech on the seesaw with consequences, uh, the, that balancing act. We'll talk about the defamation lawsuit that Fox News is is facing, and then we'll wrap by digging more into this COVID relief bill, a one point nine trillion dollar bill that seems like it's going to be my worst fears, and the, it's going to be jammed down our throats in the near future. No, it won't be that bad. <laughs> well, well, we'll see about that. So, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's been all over the news this past week. She has been somewhat in the news over the since she's been elected back in since she, she was elected back in November. Uh, so, just as a little bit of background, she is a freshman congresswoman representing the fourth Georgia's 14th district, which I believe is a little northwest of Atlanta, uh, and she's been in the news. Some might say for all of the wrong reasons, and it has to do with comments she made before getting elected over the past five, ten years on Facebook and Twitter and in, in newspapers. And just to give a very broad overview of her comments, at times she associated with white supremacists and right-wing militias. She's made racist, uh, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic Facebook posts called for the execution of high-profile Democrats, including um, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi. She's spread QAnon and other conspiracy theories. The list, she's questioned whether 9-11 really happened. She uh, questioned whether some of the mass shootings happened, that alleging that some of them might have been staged uh, for the purposes of passing gun control legislation. So there, it's, it's really like a staggering amount of, of the incendiary, despicable comments from one person, not only just one person, but one person that was then subsequently elected after having made all of these comments to Congress. So it all boiled over this past week where uh, with the new administration having been um, sworn in over the past few weeks uh, in, in Congress and in, in the executive branch, uh, but Congress assigns all of the, the you know, committee, all of the members of Congress to committees. And so she was put on two committees as most freshman um, Congress people are, including the, the Health, Education, Labor, and, and Pension Committee, known as the HELP Committee. But it's the committee that's in charge of school safety, st school security, amongst other things. Which is wild, but go on. For, yeah, 
given her like it, comments on it, Parkland. It, exactly. And, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. that was really the problem. Where she was also on another committee. I think it was like a, a business committee, but people weren't as concerned about that. But when you have someone that has question the validity of, of school shootings, uh, whether, like you said, um, Parkland in Florida or Newtown in Connecticut, and just alleged that they, they might not have happened or might have been staged for political reasons. Now, being in charge of making policy concerning school security, people were rightly up in arms about that. So the Republicans had a meeting on Thursday to hear from her, to air out their feelings about her, and to debate whether or not they should strip her of her congressional her committee assignments. Ultimately, after a, a lengthy five-hour meeting in which um, Green got up and walked back some of her comments, she actually got like a standing ovation uh, from the Republican caucus. Which is you want to talk about like a low bar you got to clear in the Republican <laughs> caucus to get a standing ovation. right. So she gets it's the like standing wild. ovation and. There was a lot of debate going in um, whether McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, the the minority leader, the Republican, the leader of the the Republicans in the in the House from California, was going to strip her of of her assignments before the Democrats could get a chance to. Ultimately, the Republicans decide largely to back her, and the Democrats on Friday force a floor vote whether or not to strip her from her committees. And the vote is. Uh, like 230 to to 190 in favor of stripping her of her committee assignments. It falls largely along party lines. Uh, 11 Republicans went and voted with the Democrats. All of the Democrats voted to strip her, but uh, but 190 plus Republicans voted not to to remove her from her committees. And so there's there's a lot to this story. I'd be curious. I have a lot of thoughts uh, from the Republican uh, side of things, but I'd be curious your thoughts on the whole saga over the past week. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting juxtaposed against what's been happening with, with Liz Cheney, which I think we'll get into a little bit. Um, I mean, my my thoughts on the, the whole thing, it's like it's a little fun watching the Republican Party like implode like this or continue to. Um, but it's also, it's also startling in like, A, how did this person get here? um it's it says a lot about sort of where where we are and and when we talk about all of the benefits of democracy and getting more people involved um we don't often talk about outcomes such as this and like you know one thing that trump did do is energize a base of voters that largely stayed out of the political system because they didn't kind of believe in it or they didn't believe that there was space for them but the people that they choose to elect tend to be conspiracy theorists or, you know, I mean, in, in the case of Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, very much um, embroiled in like the QAnon. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, like orthodoxy. I don't yeah. even know really what you call it. It's kind of like a religion at this point. Um, <clears throat> so that that's definitely one part of what I've been reflecting on. I think the other aspect of it is that this is what we call the extreme wing of the Republican party. And I think there are tendencies to like say, Oh, you know, there are extremes on both sides and people might point to AOC or like Ilhan Omar as extremes on the, it's on, on my list on yep. the liberal side. Yep. These are very, very different things, right? Like what, what 
M MGT. I'll, I'll just say that so I don't have to say her three. three MTG. Names. MTG. I'm there gonna you go. whatever. I'm gonna butcher it. Um. Uh. The things that she believes in and what makes her an extreme member of the Republican Party, you know, in 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 contrast to uh, some of the more liberal or progressive members of the Democratic Party, it's almost I don't know if a dis, I mean certainly a disservice, but it's like you can't even really compare the two um, because at least you know we can recognize. The beliefs we may not i mean we may not agree with all of the things that kind of come out of the um like the the squad for for uh lack of a better term but there is um we can understand sort of like how that fits into the american political spectrum what we're seeing on the in the extremes of the republican party are things i think that we sort of thought that we have dealt with in the past um, well, we, we certainly discovered over the last year or four years that we yeah, we did we did we did right, right? right and for better or for worse they've come to the front and now we have an embodiment and it's not just um, Marjorie Taylor Greene there are others uh, there's you know Congresswoman from uh, Lauren Bobart I'm not I'm not pronouncing her name correctly but a Congresswoman from Colorado who's also like a QAnon believer supporter so this is like you said this is. <laughs> All of our rhetoric over the past few months has been like, well, one of the positive outcomes of the Trump era has been there have been more people participating in democracy. And sometimes when more people participate in democracy, we might not like the outcomes. The outcomes is, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, amongst others. Uh, I have a question for you about this because this is been hearing a, a lot of this. I'm not totally sure how I feel about it, but how much of, of this vote do you think was purely political versus on the Democratic side versus the rhetoric of oh, we actually need to stand up for the norms of our institution, our democracy, and we can't have people who who say these things, who maybe believe these things, sitting on these important committees. Versus, like we opened your comments by saying, it is kind of fun to sit back and watch the Republicans tear each other apart and turn on each other. And now you either, if you voted to strip her of her committee assignments on the Republican side, you're a little bit of a traitor and you're going to get bashed by the Trump base because she's a huge Trump supporter. Trump is a huge supporter of hers, unsurprisingly, either direction. Um, and so like those 11 Republicans are going to get primaried by Trump people. And if you voted for not to strip her of her committee assignments, you're going to get labeled as like a QAnon supporter. And so there's the, the vote was really effective from a political standpoint from from the Democratic side. And I totally get that. But I'm more curious, like, how much do you think how obviously it weighed in the calculus. It would be naive of us to say that it wasn't a factor at all. But how much do you think it was the driving factor versus just a, uh, an ancillary benefit to Democrats? Yeah, I mean, there is right sort of a precedent for parties dealing with kind of fringe members of their own party on their own, right? Like in the past, we've had congressmen or whatever come out and say racist things and their their own party has said you know we're going to censure you we may strip you of your committee rights right like there is a little bit of like we're going to police internally so that it doesn't come to this where we're sort of being forced to do something by the other party um again like kind of like a fundamental sort of you would think the republican party being the party for preserving norms in many ways right like that is that's kind of like a core principle of conservatism um would would be on on board with that 
I cer- I mean, I, I certainly think that it, w- as you said, it would be naive to, to think that there wasn't, here's an opportunity where we can force you to choose. Am I going to get Trump's base in next election or are, are, am I going to have to go on record saying I'm backing this person and that maybe if things cool off in the future, now four years down the road, like I'm also on record backing this person who is like a total looney tune. Right. So like there, there's, there's, it was almost a win-win for, for Democrats in this, in this, um, in this context, I think. For sure. And that's, why, why I've said this so many times on this podcast, like how like another frustrating area of, of politics for me. So uh, Sean Maloney, who's a Democratic congressman from New York who runs uh, the Democratic Congressional Committee, like the caucus to elect more Democrats, now says like when they stood with Q, we didn't think it would be a standing ovation, referencing the standing ovation that she got. And yeah. so this is an effort in large part to tie the Republican Party as a whole to the fringe right wing of QAnon and the conspiracy theories, and not to say it doesn't happen both ways. Of course, on the Republican side, we try to tie everyone to uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders and Pelosi, right? Those ads have been running for years. So I, I know that this happens both ways, but it's it, it's very frustrating that there might have been, and in fact, I think there are legitimate reasons for Republicans not to have voted, to have voted to not strip her of her committee assignments. In fact, I think if I was a Republican congressperson, I would have voted not to strip her of her committee assignments. And I can say that knowing that the comments that she said were despicable, that I don't think they have any sort of place in the Republican Party, in any sort of place in American political discourse, in in Congress at all. I'm upset that this person was elected to Congress. With that said, she was elected to Congress. And whether we agree with the people in her district or not, she is incredibly popular in her district. She won like her district overwhelmingly and is has well, a lot of support. She won she won the general overwhelmingly. She came out of a Republican primary as in a big field of Republicans. Sure, but the fact that she won a general election primary overwhelmingly says something about the people in her district and these comments were all these are not like new comments that she made that they weren't well known or just coming to light everyone knew who she was and voted for her yeah but i mean i like she she won an overwhelmingly republican district overwhelmingly over her opponent did even somebody run against her in the in the general but like in the actual republican primary i think she was another one of those 20 25 percent of the of the vote maybe Right. My point is, and again, I'll reiterate this, is that I I wish that she wasn't elected, but she was. And now that she's here, I think she has the right to represent her district and be put on committees. If if you didn't like her being on the the help committee, the one about the education and school security, I totally understand that. McCarthy offered to move her to a different committee, and Pelosi and the leadership in the Democratic Party pretty much said, absolutely not. We want her off all committees. And... That's troubling to me. I think this is another one of those norms, one of these traditions, precedents that are being set that are that is going to come back and bite the Democrats. And we've mentioned this before that Democrats are often very short term thinkers and try to get like short term wins as opposed to thinking long term. And we we mentioned with the judicial filibuster, McConnell eight years ago, legendarily getting up there and saying, this is going to backfire on you when we, when we take back over the majority, which they did and which it did. So then Thursday, Kevin McCarthy gets up and says, 
The Democratic resolution sets a dangerous new standard that will only deepen divisions within this House and suggests that turnabout would someday be fair play for Republicans. I would advise you to think twice, he said. If people are held to what they said prior to even being in this House, if the majority party gets to decide who sits on what other committees, I hope you keep that standard because we have a long list to work with. He's, he's laying out that same marker that McConnell did. And one, one the Republicans, and it's not if, it's absolutely when the Republicans get back from the majority, Ilhan Omar should not be allowed to sit on committees either. I think that's... Uh, I, and if, if you cannot compare the beliefs that Ilhan Omar has to what Marjorie Taylor Greene is out there saying. Like, just at, like they're absolutely not comparable things. And I think this is a huge problem that Republicans are are need to grapple with is that we're not talking about opposite ends of the same spectrum here we're literally talking about somebody who's been living in a complete fantasy land and now that person is in the position to like make laws uh for our country and i think it is perfectly reasonable to to say i don't think that person is fit to do those things now i'm i don't dispute that like who's making the judgment of reasonable but again this is an area where you would potentially expect her Republican colleagues to take charge here and say like you're I'm sorry the things that you have done in the past which you know that's all that anybody ever has to go on and what somebody might do in the future should have some bearing here and not all and while a lot of this stuff was like we kind of knew that she was a QAnon person not everything that she had said like a lot more has come to light since her coming into into office right but the, the part of this that bothers me is that she all of this as you just said she said before she came into office so you gave an example just generally uh before but i'll give it a specific name so representative steve king was a republican congressman iowa. from iowa right and um while he had like a long history before getting elected of making uh, somewhat like racist bigoted statements uh, in 2019 he questioned the term like why white supremacy was offensive and at that point, McCarthy and Republicans stripped him of his committee assignments and said, like, you're a congressman, like, you're representing our party at this point. Um, and you like that, those that type of rhetoric has no place in in our party. And like you're not going to get to sit on committees. All of this stuff happened before she was elected. So Tom Reed, who's a Republican from New York, said this type of rhetoric has no standing, no place in Congress. And she knows where we stand as a conference. She did this before she came to Congress. And I'm all giving I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt, saying, all right, that's remember absurd. Of Congress she now. actually didn't she introduce articles of impeachment within like her first week of becoming of going into congress what does that have to do with this i mean you you have the you have the right to any congressperson has the right to introduce but come on it's the exact same pattern of is there anything that biden has done within the first month that's even wildly within the realm of an impeachable offense no no no. obviously not no but it's so those those didn't go anywhere anyway that was like that was ever a realistic shot at happening yeah, but it's it, it kind of like what is like it goes to like a pattern of uh, behavior that this lady is unhinged and an absolute lunatic and still like she didn't like say all these things come to Congress and all of a sudden like I'm I'm no longer a lunatic. I think she's tried to say that like I'm a little bit of a reform lunatic. I used to believe all these things and now like I don't, but I do. Like, she, she did walk back uh, a lot of what she said and she didn't apologize, but she said that school shootings were, quote, absolutely real. 9-11 absolutely I happened. I think she said real for the people who experienced yeah. them or something. Some, she just gave, she gave a speech on, on the floor on Thursday that said, um, 
you know, that 9-11 absolutely happened. I don't believe it's fake. Same thing with school shooting. So she has walked back these slightly. And I, I believe that she gave more of an apology to the GOP caucus saying that she apologizes for putting them in this position. So uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's one of those things. It's a, it's another dangerous precedent to send. She was, she was duly elected. And uh, if we're going to judge people on comments they made before they, they enter these positions, I, I think that's a mistake. I think that's for people in their district to to judge them on, uh, to either vote for them or vote against them. And once they're elected to Congress, like they, their job is to represent their people. And whether or not we agree with those those views, it's not it's not certainly not shouldn't be the job of the other party, in my opinion, to say what committees people in the other party sit on. Yeah, I don't know. Republicans kind of love the the slippery slope argument for like everything except for the slippery slope that they're sliding down with sort of right wing white supremacy. All right. Well, let's <laughs> let's uh, let's take the other end of the the GOP speech battle that happened this week, and that was Liz Cheney. Someone we, with a conscience. Ab- ab- with absolutely. So principles. Um, Liz Cheney. Uh, Hard is, to find in the Republican Party. Goodness gracious. I. <laughs> uh, Liz Cheney is the third ranking member of the Republican House leadership. She's the Republican um, conference chair. So um, she's not just a member of the House, but uh, an important member of House, member of leadership, like I said, uh, and famously the daughter of Dick Cheney, who was the former vice president under President George W. Bush. Uh, so it has like a lot of name recognition. So anyway, Cheney voted, was one of the 10 Republicans to vote to uh, impeach President Trump uh, a couple weeks ago, and there was a massive uproar in in the GOP that one of their leadership members had turned on on the president. Uh, the Wyoming GOP party censured her, which is essentially just like re- rebuked her for for doing so. Matt Getz, uh, who's a congressman from Florida, went to Wyoming to host a rally, encouraging people to run against Liz Cheney, which is wild, and. In that five-hour meeting that I referenced earlier, not only did the Republicans have to deal with what to do with the lunatic Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they also had to deal, you know, decide on what to do with Liz Cheney and held a vote of whether or not she should still hold her leadership position, which is wild to me. But uh, ultimately, she prevailed 145 to 60-ish uh, to allow her to keep her position, which brings up a lot of things. One that Cheney had far more support than people thought she did. There was a lot of, there was a lot of belief that she was going to get stripped of her leadership role uh, because this was done by a secret ballot. And so a lot of people could publicly rip Cheney and then keep that Trump base and say, well, I can't believe she turned on the president. And then when it comes to the secret ballot, privately support her. I'm glad they supported her, but these people are just cowards. Uh, and again, it's, it's easy for me to sit back as someone not in elected office and criticize people for being cowards. But Liz Cheney and the other nine Republican senators, um, Congress people that voted to impeach President Trump did so with the full knowledge that they were going to get primary, that they were going to get pilloried in the media, that they would potentially lose standing within their own party. And they did it because they felt it was the right thing to do. So as snide as your comment was a couple minutes ago, she does have a conscience. And she's someone that I think all Republicans should not be trying to rebuke, but we should be holding her up as like the future of the Republican Party. This is who we really are. And we should be pushing her more towards the forefront, in my opinion. Um, and you know, someone that's had her back throughout this is actually Leader McConnell. Senator McConnell has been very much, uh, you know, supporting Liz Cheney and said that it was a huge victory for her. It must feel really good. I'm sure it does feel really good to be vindicated in this way. But the fact that she had to even go through this is is troubling. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of on the on the liberal side of things, a big 
to do was made about the fact that she had 60 members of her uh of her party vote against her while marjorie taylor green only had 11 vote against her and it is still emblematic of of kind of where the republican party is what trump's hold on the republican party is and or sort of trumpism i guess um hold on the republican party is i think more or more broadly just the the scary part of it all is that you know i i think a real part of democracy is that we elect people that we believe are going to kind of act on their principles and act you know we hope in the best interest of um their constituents but largely like in the best interest of the country at large like that is the if we if we take a step back from like what their day-to-day thing is that's kind of the overarching goal behind a a democratic sort of run um country is that if you get kind of enough of these people together and they're all sort of representing larger and larger groups that eventually you have this kind of whatever a, a government that that is acting um in the benefit of the majority of the people um but behind that is sort of this belief that <clears throat> our elected representatives do have these principles and these values that we kind of all share and and they stick to them they're allowed to exercise them freely not it's not beholden to party it's not beholden to individuals um right and so on that face alone the fact that somebody else's decision clearly made on principle it'd be one thing if they were like you know we found a reason and it's tied to money or it's tied to something else that she made that like there was nothing politically for her to gain from what she did and knowing full well like you know it may not go anywhere there's really no reason to do what she did other than um she did what she thought was right other than she did what she thought was right and for her to get skewered for that it's really unfortunate i mean you think it would happen it it seems like it it happens no matter you know what side of the of the party you're on if you're not towing the party line all of a sudden you're a traitor to the party which you know you, you shouldn't have really any allegiance to the party if you have common values that's great but your allegiance is to the country, and that's what you should be acting on behalf of. Theoretically. Right? Theoretically. Exactly. But so it does, it just continues to expose yep. issues with our primary process yep. that we harp on a lot, um, that so many people have to be worried about that. And they go to Congress, and they're already worried about, like, so many of these folks just got there right. within the last few months. And so, and they're, they're already worried about, I'm not going to maintain this seat and then there is that like all right well i can't do any good if i'm not here it's like while you're there you're not doing any good because you're worried about whether you can do good two years from now if you can't get reelected. it's like all right well what are, what are we doing here yeah it's so i mean stepping back this week exposed a lot of fissures within the gop and i suppose credit to the Democrats for politically showing, exposing those, those cracks. Um, on the other hand, McCarthy, Leader McCarthy, has kept the tent as big as possible. And while there were defections on both Green and, and Cheney, largely within one five-hour meeting, Republicans voted to both support Marjorie Taylor Green 
and support Liz Cheney, um, who are, as far as the House Republican caucus is concerned, on diametrically opposite ends. And in that sense, it's a gamble. It'll be really interesting where, as, as a party, Republicans have chosen not to exercise or excise either Green or Cheney and are kind of hoping that in two years that unity of keeping that tent as big as possible is keeping the Trump supporters in and keeping the moderate Republicans in will lead to a majority. We'll obviously have to see that how that'll play out, but it's it's a fascinating gamble. Yeah, it just it's one of those things where again, the like the comparison between the extremes of the Democratic Party and sort of the more moderate like Biden wing of the party versus the AOC uh progressive wing aoc bernie sanders kind of progressive wing of the party is that those are still parties committed to working within the system whereas like marjorie taylor green is coming to washington having insisted on the fact that like everyone in washington is part of a satanic cult that is like whatever they're into cannibalism and also pedophilia and pedophilia right so that's the big one right so it's like all right i i get trying to maintain sort of momentum for the republican party and and this is but it's like you can't you can't really work with with that wing of the party like (laughs) says you (laughs) yeah i mean maybe maybe yeah and and maybe i'm just wrong on this but it that like again it's like we can operate from a common set of facts to come up with like compromises and things like that but if we're if we're actually arguing about whether or not like I'm a cannibal or like a pedophile or like something like that, something not rooted in any actual evidence, then it's like, it's very difficult. I can't, there's no rational argument if, if there's no, like we can't agree on any of the premises, right? No, totally agree. And like I said, my, my huge issue with the green saga, well, my huge issue is really with her, like in everything that she stands for. But my, like my specific issue this week was I didn't feel like, the precedent that it sent of Democrats um, stripping her of her committee assignments was the right precedent. I, I don't believe that was correct. But this goes back to something I said a few weeks ago when you posed to me for the you know endless time on this podcast, like, where does the Republican Party go from here? And I said, well, I hope we're able to sit back and take a long look at ourselves and maybe sacrifice some short-term successes to try to rebuild a party around people that I would say, like, around the Liz Cheney's of, of the party. That clearly hasn't happened, right? We had we had an opportunity to do that, and, and we didn't. And while, again, I understand the reason for not voting to strip over committee assignments, keeping the tent as big as possible is necessarily keeping this whack job fringe of the party within the tent of the party. And the goal is, understandably so, that the majority is within reach in both the House and the Senate in two years. And so we need to keep the tent as big and keep us as as unified as we possibly can be in order to flip those houses that comes you know at the expense of of fundamental facts <laughs> like <laughs> foundations of democracy i don't like i don't feel like i can overstate it that by by continuing to engage with the marjorie taylor green wing of the party we have we have uh more or less sanctioned it and said it's okay to to believe these things and elect these people so i don't know I feel like I did have to defend Marjorie Taylor Greene being stripped of her committee assignments, but I don't in any way want this to be a defense of who she is as a person and what she represents.
consequences. So we stopped recording and then we continued to debate as we often do. And as as we often say to each other, we're like, man, we should have just kept that rolling there. And so we got into a little bit of a discussion of Ilhan Omar, who is a congresswoman from Minnesota, who I had uh, referenced it, almost comparing in some ways uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you rightfully, I think, drew a distinction between the things that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said and Ilhan Omar said. I totally agree with that. I don't think they're equivalent. Um, with that said... Omar made some anti-Semitic, tweeted some anti-Semitic things uh, back in 2019, I believe, and she was uh, like rebuked in in the in the broader the House, and everyone signed a petition, including she signed on to, to saying that we don't stand for anti-Semitism, this kind of language. And my point was that that was a good thing, and that's what I wish that had happened with Marjorie Taylor Greene, is that as a bipartisan group, everyone had come together and said we don't this House. Neither of our parties, this country doesn't stand for the things that you have said in the past and may still believe in, and we should censure you now. My problem was with the stripping of our committee assignments. We've said that ad nauseum. I've said that ad nauseum at this point. Um, but the larger point here is that when Omar made her statements, she was rebuked and she faced consequences for them. And there are, you could argue, reasons for her. It comes largely out of her feelings around the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And as a Muslim, she's um, very pro-Palestinian, understandably so. That's a very complicated issue that we're not going to get into. But the, the things that she said, the words that she used were offensive, hurtful, and potentially harmful, and she was rebuked. And essentially, there, are, there were consequences for her actions. And you could fairly argue that there were consequences for Marjorie Taylor Greene's words. There were consequences for Omar's words. There were consequences for uh, Taylor Greene's words. Speaking of consequences of your words, there is... In this past week, Fox News has been sued for defamation. Um, I think it's like a $2.7 million lawsuit. Oh, billion with the billion. billion. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's no joke. Yeah, so why don't you, why don't you tell me a little bit more about that uh, that lawsuit? Yeah, so th this story, I think it was covered in the Daily earlier this week um, as well. Uh, I, I don't listen to the Daily because they just they just steal your takes. I know yeah. they 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 really rip me on that, <laughs> wall, on that Wall Street. I feel like our I feel like our podcast setup is bugged here. Um, but I'll just touch on kind of a little bit of the overview, but why I think it's interesting just in the context of what's been going on with Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene, also sort of the president getting kicked off of Facebook and all the social media platforms. Um, anyways, I digress yet again. The so the 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 crux of this issue, I guess, is that um, a voting software company called Smartmatic is suing Fox News for defamation um, because Fox News sort of recirculated and amplified a number of different stories suggesting that Smartmatic was started by Hugo Chavez. And, he, yeah, it's, 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 it, it is, Damn it. It is, it is, it's kind of, it's kind of laughable in that sense. And that oh. it was responsible for a bunch of, um, you know, actual, I think, I mean, this, the story is complicated, which is why I don't want to get into too many of the facts because I'm probably going to get most of them wrong. But the gist of it is that, yeah, that Smartmatic um, was created by Hugo Chavez is still like a Venezuelan, like, you know, socialist communist enterprise um, and was employed to flip votes from Trump to Biden in uh, in in all of the key swing states like uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, you know, the drill. Um, they 
uh, are are an election software company. Apparently, they were actually only used in L.A. County, so they're really not used in the U.S. like at all. It's not let facts get uh, away no. the narrative. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yes, it is important, you know, to not let facts get in the way of a good story. Um, but yeah, they sort of they became this punching bag, and basically, what they said is that like all of their sort of pipeline of deals, which happened to be primarily international, um, were thrown into jeopardy and they are estimating sort of future losses of their business to be um, upwards of $2.7 billion, which is what they're suing Fox News for, for damages. So I may let you get into um, sort of the damage construct. I I think it's a really interesting way that we have sort of allowed... um, kind of policing of some of these issues to occur but i thought about it in the in the uh or in relation to what's going on with marjorie taylor green because it is largely a first amendment um issue like do we sort of have um i think republicans in many ways um over the past couple of years have really been feeling as if their first amendment rights to freedom of speech and freedom of the press have been infringed upon because their stories are potentially getting, uh, I don't want to say suppressed, um, because I think it's kind of laughable to think of Fox News as not a mainstream media source, given how many people watch it. But uh, I'll try not to get into that issue here. But I think the the idea of uh, of the First Amendment is and you were kind of giving me the actual text of it, and maybe you can share it in a second. Um, but the idea is that government cannot kind of restrict speech. But um, that doesn't mean that you cannot be held accountable for your speech, which is you know something that we're trying to do with the former president, um, something that people were trying to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and now uh, is trying to happen to Fox News. Um, so any and all thoughts on on what's going on there oh my goodness it's you say some of these things like you i know you're like you get your sources from legitimate news articles and you read them and it it just sounds so ridiculous and i'm like these these are the people that are (laughs) i'm on the same side with (laughs) you guys are killing me over here uh but Generally speaking, as a value, I think people should be held accountable for what they do and what they say. Um, and that doesn't mean that Marjorie Taylor Greene was huge on like cancel culture. And cancel culture, I believe, is like a real thing. And that definitely does exist. And I think it's a bad part of our society. And that we're, you know, sometimes you get quote unquote canceled for things you said five years ago, 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. And it's, well, if you haven't changed your views over the course of those years, then that's a different story. But for the vast majority of people, a comment made years ago shouldn't necessarily does not necessarily indicate that's who you are today and that's what you believe today. With that said, that's not the issue here. These are the things Fox News, like hosts of Fox News, said recently that Marjorie Taylor Greene said recently that the president said recently, and. Uh, yeah, I believe that you should be held accountable for it. Free speech is not totally free. As you alluded to earlier, the First Amendment, which most people have no actual idea. When the I pe- barely did. The, so. the, the, the people that, like, it's it's frustrating because the people that are the first to pull out the amendment things generally have, have like, the least idea of what it actually says. So it says, like, 
Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or protecting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, press, the right of the people to assemble, petition the government, etc. But the big thing is that Congress shall make no law. So when Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, what were the, what were the other cla- like ridiculous ones that restricted? Pinterest. Them? Pinterest. Yeah. When uh, when Pinterest kicks Donald Trump off of their platform, they're not impinging, abridging his right to free speech because the government's not doing anything to to prevent their speech. Uh, I I do understand the frustration on the right of because. It's not that they don't believe these things are true, which is sad and frustrating in a lot of ways. But it, if you legitimately believe that these things are true and other people are saying these things on Fox News, on Twitter, wherever, and, and now they're being silenced, quote unquote, because they're being deplatformed or they're being sued. I understand the frustration of like my voice is being restricted. And I, that is that's a, that's a that's a huge issue that we're going to have to reckon with because that feeling and that anger is, is real. Um, with that said, like there's, you have to take responsibility for what you say. And like Fox news, if you're going to put hosts on there, Lou Dobbs, who just got let go, thank goodness. Like if you're, if you're going to put hosts on there, great. Like if you're going to put hosts on there that are really going to peddle these conspiracy theories, which is one of the reasons that we have all these people who believe these conspiracy theories, because Fox news, as you said, is a mainstream news outlet. They've done an incredible job marketing themselves. Like if you're going to employ these hosts that are going to peddle obviously false conspiracy theories then you need to be held accountable for it i think yeah and the lawsuit's a, a great way to do it 2.7 billion i have no idea where they came up with that number i mean that's not a real number but uh, you that, gotta start high. yeah whatever it doesn't mean that the damage is that they felt aren't and will not be real for that company yeah and i i mean i think um i, I guess you know what we have tried to do with uh, a lot of the lies and misinformation that has been spread on the internet is that we have been after the sort of the tech companies that um, that you know provide the platform, provide the opportunity for these things to spread. But this, for me, is one of the first instances where, rather than go after like the websites and and things like that, they're saying no, this is a legitimate news outlet that is also spreading this information and here is kind of a demonstrable link to harm that it is doing now obviously we can think about the societal harm that this is doing but that's a very like nebulous concept and we don't have because of some of the protections of freedom of speech and and the way that even though as you said like tech companies actually have no uh they are not congress so they are allowed to do whatever they want on their platforms but they still operate in the society and the society very much values freedom of speech. So they try and emulate that in many ways, or at least talk about emulating those similar uh, or or try and preserve similar rights or whatever. So they've allowed a lot of this stuff to proliferate, but the idea is, or the problem has been is that there has been zero consequences. You can click share or like on anything and it, doesn't matter whether it's true or not it doesn't matter whether you're sharing it leads somebody else to believe it you might not even believe it but you're sharing it and somebody else believes it right what's that thing that people put in their twitter bios uh like the retweets don't aren't yeah like, or like uh, don't, don't imply endorsements yeah, or yeah, something yeah. yeah yeah 
Right. So Trump was huge on that. He was like, I just retweet things. Yeah. I, I don't even really know what they say. <laughs> like, Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. All your retweets have a certain pattern, yeah. though. But sure. Um, but but now we have like an an avenue that we've sort of that that sort of has been identified that we can hold some people to account for uh, for lies and misinformation, which I don't know if this is really you know what we how we want this to be policed but it's certainly an avenue and we haven't had an answer for it and 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 really a lot of the cries have been yeah let's let's have facebook or let's have um google or you know youtube or whatever figure out how to stop these things from spreading where whereas you know a few of these massive massive lawsuits and people are profiting off of off of the spread of this information and, and how we can start holding them accountable um is is potentially an avenue that we deal with this because yeah. we haven't been effectively able to deal with this um in the past and and it's it's a lot the same way that you would hold somebody like president trump accountable for what happened at the capitol it's like you can't right like we said freedom of speech is protected but you can't yell fire in a in a crowded room when there is no fire right there is you there are certain things about that it's not freedom of speech without consequence and that's something that we may have here now it's a huge bar for somebody to prove defamation that that this like actually happened that they did it knowingly and that like the harm can be proven so we'll see where the court case goes but as you as you mentioned lou dobbs is already out of a job um there are going to be some some repercussions, and I think some news organizations are gonna are gonna think about this a little bit, which is a good thing. And you know, ultimately, our goal collectively should be to try to rid our society of disinformation. And while we have you know moaned about it for weeks and months here between the two of us, it's been really hard to come up with solutions. And so I read somewhere that after President Trump was uh, removed from Twitter, that the, the spread of misinformation went down like a crazy percentage, like 30% just because he was removed. And while I was against at the time, and I'm still against, while I certainly agree that Twitter, Facebook, whomever has the right to remove whomever they want, I, I'm not in favor of them doing it. But when you see the actual effects of it, it's like, okay, like, I don't like, because I don't think the the ends justify the means here like the means still bother me i'm like as i've said a million times i'm a process guy and the, the processes still you know really stick with me and are important to me but we we need to dis like you said people are making money off this disinformation we need to disincentivize that and one way to disincentivize that is that it, it's going to come out of, of your your wallet and maybe then you like you said you think twice you you vet some of the stories that you put forward that you you reconsider some of the hosts that you're going to allow to speak on your platform and fox is a massive news organization if they get hit with this and are, are found liable for it this is a big deal because some of these smaller news organizations newsmax um oan uh these type of organizations they don't have the pocketbooks that fox does and uh was it newsmax that was sued by uh dominion, dominion yeah right so like these sorts of things if they're actually found to be liable for them, they have to pay for them Again, there will be outrage on the right of, look, again, everyone's, all the elites, the liberals are ganging up on us. But I think from my perspective, getting back 
to a fact-based argument is a is a good thing. And so, yeah, we'll say, like you said, it'll be interesting to see where the lawsuit goes. But uh, I think companies should certainly have the right to defend themselves against defamation. And I respect these companies for doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you uh, probably know this better than I have, but, but along the lines of what you were saying is the, the $2.7 billion price tag. Now, who knows what the damages will be at the end of the day, but a lot of the reason damages are awarded at the magnitude that they are is for that, uh, you know, the, the negative incentive i'm of course yeah, blanking yeah. on the word i don't know but... well to discourage or disincentivize yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah 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 exactly exactly all right so when we come back we'll wrap the week with a status update on the uh on the covid relief package oh, I'm the one to blame. if you stay around i will let you down i've been So at the beginning of the episode, I kind of tongue-in-cheek said that like my worst nightmare is happening, that it looks like Biden and, and his cronies are going to ram this $1.9 trillion, his, his stimulus relief package, down everyone's throats. Uh, and we covered this in depth last week, how I thought there was room for a bipartisan solution. You also thought there was room for a bipartisan solution. You said, hey, if we can settle around somewhere, Biden was saying 1.9, Republicans were saying $600 billion. If we can settle around 1.2, we could have something. You and I, I thought, we talked it out. And again, this is really easy without having to actually write anything and actually do anything. But we're like, all right, we have a consensus here. And I, I actually do think that in real life, that is a possible consensus. doesn't look like Biden is going that way. I am, while it's not my worst nightmare because people do need help and people running around with more money in their pockets to be able to afford rent and to afford food for their families is a good thing. So generally speaking, like giving people more money who need money is a good thing. I'm in favor of that. I'm glad it's going to be happening. I am just really frustrated and disappointed by how Biden is doing it. You didn't think, or I would say most people weren't aware that you even could do this when you only have 50 senators. Do you want to take us through how it's even possible to be able to do it? Sure. So um, I'm also not sort of a congressional scholar, but from what I understand of the situation, essentially, both the House and the Senate have now passed budget resolutions, kind of agreeing to the overall framework of a $1.9 uh, trillion aid package. Um, what is going to happen now uh, is the budget is going to go through this reconciliation process, essentially meaning that it will be safe from a Senate filibuster, which would typically require a 60 vote supermajority to pass. Um, now, once they actually come up with the budget, it can be passed on a 50-50 tie break with Kamala Harris getting that additional 51 <clears throat> votes in the Senate. And then obviously Democrats have the regular majority in the House um, to be able to pass it as well. So we'll probably see this bill within the next two weeks or so. Um, I'm surprised. I, I really, I think, I this doesn't feel like Biden to me. It feels like, like Biden has, he knew he was potentially going to have some problems on the left flank of his party. And I think he's done a good job politically from his standpoint of 
of kind of kowtowing to them or at least making them feel very included that their voices are being heard on a lot of these things. And I think there are a lot of people in his office, Ron Klain, who's his chief of staff principally, um, who they were around for the Obama years. They know how much Republicans uh, tried to derail the Obama presidency at every single turn. And the lesson that they took away was that like, we're just not going to work with Republicans. And while I understand that, and their experience tells them that it's not worth trying to get Republican votes for things, that's, again, a really dangerous trend to set in your first couple of weeks of your administration. Do you know the last time this reconciliation process was used? So the last major event that I can think of was the Trump tax cuts, a $2.3 trillion tax cut package, which was also passed without uh, going through the Senate, which would have faced a Democratic filibuster and required a 60-vote supermajority. Instead, it was passed through the process of reconciliation. Yeah, so I guess the, <clears throat> the lesson from that is that both parties look at the other party and say, well, we can't work with them, so we're just going to pass things without them. Yeah, and I, I mean, I will say to Biden's credit, and I don't know what, what kind of the sentiment in the Senate is, I don't think it is an entire, like, he didn't even look at us and he just ran us over with this. Um, a few things that are going to likely come out primarily because Joe Manchin doesn't support them. But um, the $15 minimum wage is not going to be a part of this sort of budgetary cycle. It wasn't ever going to kind of come into play in the near term. It was always a long term play, but it looks like it's that language is going to be removed. They're going to have some protections on. Um, the amount of money that high income earners might see from stimulus checks, um, which obviously is a good thing. I'm surprised it wasn't like a no brainer, obviously included from the start um, or, you know, just like people whose jobs have not been impacted. Uh, well, of course, there's like a health care issue. I mean, health care, daycare, a lot of, I guess, other costs that people are incurring. So maybe that's not um, as simple as I want it to be. Um, but <clears throat> I think, as you said, so largely the idea was that we'll never come to a place where we feel like we're getting enough out of a negotiation. Right. It's not um, worth the time. To, to make it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I get that, right? Like, in Biden has, has repeatedly emphasized the urgency of this, is that people are hurting now, and we need to get money in their pockets now. Like, waiting until March is there, there are people that are going to be out of a home that are not going to be able to feed their families. I totally get that. Uh it, it's, I, it just feels like all of his rhetoric around unity and bipartisanship and that he could make things happen, he is nowhere close to Trump. But it, it feels airily reminiscent of Trump being like, I'm the deal maker. I'm the one that can make things happen. Biden, in a different way, promised something similar, saying that, like, hey, my experience in the Senate, I know Mitch McConnell. We can work together. And now... Yeah, you, you say, I honestly think it's, it's mostly a slap in the face uh, that he is not going to negotiate really at all on this. Yeah, and it's really just like it's more of an optics thing right now, right? Like nobody really can tie out where that $1.9 trillion is going. If you said it was a trillion, it might as well be two trillion. Like you would have no idea. So it's really just like what is the number getting printed in the paper if it's not 1.9 then it sounds like some compromise happened at 1.9. Everyone's takeaway is that, like, you know, Democrats just decided that there was no compromise to be had. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly an argument to be made that this is not, it doesn't 
portend well for some type of unity down the road. And of course, as as we talked about, or something that I, I certainly believe in, that in order for a lot of these bits of legislation to be successful, that you do need buy-in from both sides. I think on Biden's, in the Biden court, or sort of his, like, you're giving people money, and in general, they don't know where it's coming from, so everybody's like happy about it it's like you know free lunch or you know soda in the soda or soda in the water machines or something which um, what you're alluding to is people running for like student council in middle school yes yes <laughs> like, sorry. Like, yeah, yes exactly they don't know where the budget is that's not a really great care. that's not a great look if that's your comparison right now no, yeah but i mean as we know these are things that play well with voters of course, right? of, of, course, course. of course yeah um so it, i mean yeah it it is it's one of those things where if this is the precedent that he's setting for his entire administration, um, maybe it doesn't bode well. But as you also noted, this is potentially a special circumstance. I think something that we're, you know, obviously Democrats are, are picking up here and there. But there is, for me, a lot of hypocrisy in uh, Republican opposition to this particular uh, bill that like all of a sudden the deficit matters again when it exploded under the Trump administration and under it the, had in the Bush administration in the too. Bush and Obama like it it's it's really just been climbing year over Since year yeah. for a long long time and it seems to be only when Democrats are in power that Republicans are caring a lot about the deficit and then. You know, Seasonal deficit hawks. It is it's a great. It is. It's a great line and uh, it's it's true uh, but. That doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate things that we should discuss and debate about this $1.9 trillion package. And so this was kind of hot in the streets at the end of this past week. Uh, Lawrence Summers, Larry Summers, who was the former Treasury Secretary for Bill Clinton, was a top ep- economic advisor for President Obama, also memorably played in The Social Network when the Winkle, the Winklevi go to him and ask him to like shut down Zuckerberg's Facebook and he tells him to just go invent something else. Uh, classic. Uh, but then I think he also like gave a speech at Harvard where he said like men are just intrinsically better at science than women or something. He is uh, not an uncontroversial guy, yeah. but certainly very famous and has been very powerful uh, in, in the Democratic Party for years as an economist. Um, but he wrote an article, I think it came out on Thursday in the Washington Post, and this is something that had been kind of whispered about for weeks, and I, I want to go over it a little bit. But the the overarching thesis of the article was that in this rush to get this bill, to jam it through Congress, no one's really having discussions and debates about like what is this actually going to do. It's just we've settled on this number, like you said, $1.9 and we just want to get that done. And there's <laughs> – it's – really debatable of whether or not this is necessary or even good for the economy. So I want to bring a couple of points that he said that he made it in his column. And he, he admits that he was in charge of the 2009 stimulus the, under the Obama administration that in hindsight was uh, woefully inadequate. It wasn't enough to, to really jumpstart the economy. Which, which Biden points to a Ab- lot. That absolutely. We didn't do enough then. It, yes. That's what I'm more worried about. Exactly. He's, he's like, I've been there when we haven't done enough. If we do too much, I'm okay with that. I'd rather do too much than too little. And that's the lesson that he took out of 2009. And I get that uh, because his administration, Obama's administration for years had to deal with a struggling economy because they didn't get it right in 2009. Uh, but 
what a couple points that Summers makes that I thought were interesting, and I'm not enough of an economist to to really comment on them, but it feels like we should at least be debating these things. He he's he argues that 1.9 trillion will overheat the economy, and what does that mean? It means that he's actually worried about inflation, which we haven't worried about in like a generation. But all of a sudden, if you're throwing you know, a couple trillion dollars, in addition to the $4 trillion that we put into the economy last year, that there are some potential downsides of that that we might not be able to see. But all of a sudden, if if inflation happens and the value of a dollar isn't what it once was, that's, that, that's a whole other can of worms that we're going to open up. Yeah. So just a quick primer on like the idea behind inflation is that if you basically maintain the sort of goods and resources within an economy at stable and you increase the money supply the only thing that does is reduce the value of you know your currency and what happens then well a lot of things happen then. Right. actually your exports get more uh they're cheaper relative to your imports and so i can't believe you went to import export <laughs> when no, well, no, yeah. so, so that i mean a near-term benefit of inflation is that you can actually you know it it's better for your trade deficits um when your currency is lower well that's why we're always you know accusing china right. of devaluing the currency devaluing their own currency of course there are you know, tons of other issues probably namely that our debt is now uh our our debt that's especially held by foreign um or our debt that's held by sort of foreign owners of our debt becomes more expensive because they're they'll probably demand it in their own currency um and and of course as you said they're just kind of potentially like a number of different issues um in an economy that's going through a period of significant inflation which we haven't seen we haven't we haven't been alive for it hasn't really happened since i think like the late 70s maybe under carter right and so something that you and i have never experienced so in addition to that uh summers argues that right now there's in our economy the american economy there's something between uh somewhere between a 20 billion dollar and a 50 billion dollar shortfall of just people not going out and spending and, and not buying things but the biden plan will inject 150 billion a month into that economy so somewhere between three and nine eight times three and eight times like the actual the the need for it and again biden's clearly overshooting but obama's stimulus fell short biden's biden's gone like the total opposite way and it's just pouring money into the economy which as we said before a lot of this money we we don't we don't necessarily know the consequences of that maybe the value the price of goods goes up maybe people just start stashing this money in the bank because they don't need it right it's in addition, a family of four making, say, $50,000 a year under the current plan, if under Biden's plan, the primary breadwinner of the family gets laid off through the increased unemployment that Biden's proposing, this family can now make $60,000 a year. And while I don't like the arguments that like unemployment de-incentivizes people to work, I generally think the vast majority of people want to work. Like The unemployment benefits have gotten so great that they're... It's kind of crazy that someone could not be working and make $60,000 a year, in, in my opinion. While, while there are people out there working incredibly hard, long hours, multiple jobs that don't make nearly that amount of money. And additionally, as Summers points out, that the unlike in 2009, when the economy was still going down and tanking, the economy is actually on the upswing. And it's, we know it's not going to be like a V-shaped recovery, but unemployment is falling. 
people are, are, are getting more jobs. Like the economy is projected to grow, I think something like between four and 5% in 2021, because as the vaccine gets more widely distributed, there'll be more people out uh, in society, like buying things and returning life to normal and jobs will be able to, companies will be able to hire people uh, probably closer to similar rates to 2019. So while we know the economy is going to get bigger to pour all of this money in at this time, it seems like an awful lot. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely hard to argue um, with with that sentiment. It feels a little bit like that Austin Powers um, movie where he like comes out from being frozen and he says something like a million dollars and everybody. Doctor Evil, who says, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like now we're at the trillion dollar stage, and I feel like if he had said a billion dollars, people would laugh at him again because we're in we're in this new new realm of what feels like absurdity. Um, I think my bigger takeaway, less than like, do we need this money and is it going to do the things that we want it to do, is that we really, it doesn't feel like we have a good sense of what any of these things are. Exactly. Even, well, even, even in the summer's case, talking about like, you know, we have these indicators that the economy is going to do better. And it's like, what is the economy? Is it that, is it the S&P 500? Is it um, unemployment, right? Because you know, we knew with the gig economy that unemployment was going down, but people were working 70, 80 hours a week and still only making $30,000 a year, right? So there was, um, there have been these questions increasingly of like, what are the policies that we need to continue to kind of strengthen and bolster the the middle class is one that's big, but really kind of lifting, lifting all boats here. And this particular package i think really highlights the fact that we actually don't have any clue like it's just like we're throwing throwing spaghetti in the kitchen sink and everything at the wall to see if anything sticks i feel like you're like andrew yang with when he was on the democratic debate stage and he only said that he was in favor of giving people a thousand dollars a month like you just no matter what the topic is you come back to we don't know what the economy is (laughs) every episode you do all right that's fair there's a second point that summers brings up that i think might be you might be more interested in and that is that biden's plan is incredibly targeted for covid economic relief that's all that the plan is and it's that's by design that Biden is most concerned about getting relief into the hands of the people that really needed who are battling the pandemic and in the, the economy. But if it's enacted, Congress will have committed 15% of GDP with essentially no increase in any of the other Biden policy goals. So we have nothing else for public infrastructure, nothing else for education, things like we wanted to make kindergarten, we wanted to do uh, preschool for, for all, we wanted to do renewable energy investments. So we've now committed 15% of our entire GDP to this bill, and we haven't done anything else, anything else that Biden is, is going to do. And now you've done that without any bipartisan support? You think you're going to get bipartisan support to do any of those other things? Where's that money coming from? And again, you can go back and say, like, what is money? But at some point, some like, money is a real thing, you would think. But like, if you go back to, and we acknowledge that Obama's stimulus plan wasn't enough, but Obama got through uh, like a bunch of things. and. Kind of infamously, Rahm Emanuel said at the time that you never want a serious crisis to go to waste, and probably a poor choice of words. But what he wanted to, what he meant was that, like, hey, we have this chance to do a lot of stuff here. And in Obama's stimulus bill, he 
had huge investments, unprecedented investments in clean energy, in medical research, in electronic health records, in uh, infrastructure investment to highways, education for the race to the top, education reforms. And so there were, these were all things that he put like down payments on them that he could kind of build on through the rest of his administration. Biden is not is eschewing all of that to just focus on the COVID relief. And that's admirable in some ways. But I think a lot of those things that I mentioned are not only Biden policies, but things that I would say you and I probably agree on, like that we want to do infrastructure, we want to do clean energy. And that's going to become immeasurably tougher, not only because of the way that you're forcing this bill through Congress, but also the amount of money you're spending on it. Yeah. And I I think that that is, um, that's definitely... I think the biggest argument against what what's happening is that in essence no matter what we're dealing with people and there's like a certain amount of political capital there's just like a certain amount of like energy like after you do you know the congress yeah. people do this kind of thing a lot of them are just like all right time for me to go home take a break like i want a vacation and i don't want to talk to anybody for a while just go like, meet with my constituents yeah. there are other parts of a job right. besides just passing major legislation which is really challenging to do yeah and and, dra- and draining right like it's in the news 24 7 people are calling you they want you to comment on it like these are people at the end of the day and they only have you know so much energy and intellectual capacity and to to think about these things and then of course negotiations and all those types of things i think they were up until 5 a.m or something bernie sanders was talking about um in this last Harris round passed it at 5 36 right she was the 51 right. first vote yeah and so you can't you can't, can't imagine burn some the, of these people are like 80 90 years old <laughs> oh, yeah. just cannot i mean like we can't even burn the well you can i can't burn the <laughs> yeah, candle at, at, at yeah, both yeah. ends like this anymore and so there is there is that i mean i think the flip side for biden is he's he's basically being told you got two years right within you know after the first two years of a of a new uh party getting in power usually they lose either the house or the senate or both um in the midterm so you got two years ram everything you can uh but he's not through. that that's what's frustrating like if you if you had 1.9 trillion and again i don't that number's too big to me but if you were progressive and he had 1.9 trillion but you knew that 700 billion of that was going to infrastructure and clean energy and, and other you know policy progressive policies that biden promised that would be one thing it's not like well, I, I just I, I I think this is a mistake. <laughs> Up and down, any way you slice it, I think this is a mistake. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on. I think they're they're looking at polls that are saying people are in gen- generally in favor of passing a big package, and um and we'll I guess I guess yeah we'll have to see how it how it plays out. Certainly, the dispersal of these funds are are going to be a big issue um, that we'll track here in the coming weeks and months with that all said if if i get a 1400 dollars check in my bank account in a couple weeks i'm not going to be crying about that you should give it back on principle (laughs) maybe send it to to bernie anyways it's been a good week happy happy saturday night to to everybody out there you're probably having a more fun saturday night than we are i disagree this this was this this was very enjoyable we were back in person if, if people can't tell and uh, able to have a few drinks together, so that that's always enjoyable. It's it's been a pleasure, buddy. Indeed, always is. We'll see it.
Keep 